Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. For you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Dear Father, thank you uh, for joining us in worship today. Thank you for motivating us to worship you uh, because your spirit is in all of us and you have united us in Christ. And it is a privilege to meet you in worship. Father, thank you for doing all the work for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you with many cares. You were right and the world is full of trouble. And we cry out for grace and mercy in our lives. Father, every individual care, every congregational care, we lay before your feet. We ask, Lord, as we open your word and look at Psalm 4, that you grant us peace, even in storms, even when our reputations are being impugned, even uh, when we have the trouble that you promised us. For we know that you have overcome the world through your son's death and resurrection. Let us always look forward to that. Uh, Father, we cast our cares upon you. Uh, please, please be gracious to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm Luke Proctor. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I intern for Bradley Barnes here at Christ the King. He's our senior pastor, and Bradley is on vacation, so I am preaching today. Uh, I help out mainly with the youth, uh, youth group, and uh, it's been an honor to be here, and it's a privilege uh, to speak to y'all. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 4 today, which is about how to deal with frustration and anger. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to talk about John McEnroe, the former professional tennis player. Uh, yeah, John McEnroe is a former professional tennis player who was ranked number one in the world uh, for four straight years in the 1980s. And he, uh, he was actually won six Grand Slam championships, but he is by far most famous for his iconic outbursts. He would scream and yell at the top of his lungs at the line judge. Whenever the line judge would make a bad call, McEnroe would go up to the line judge and scream, you cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. And it actually became the tagline on ESPN Classic for a long time. Uh, and he was famous, despite his tennis uh, accomplishments, for his anger. He would stomp his feet. He'd slam his racket on the ground, throw a temper tantrum right there on the court. And so people started to ask, why is John McEnroe so angry? The easy answer 
is that he had a short fuse, that he already had this tendency towards anger. But Christians will recognize that his anger was more than that. Because John McEnroe's life as a professional tennis player was invested in the winning of points and then games and sets and his matches. And his whole world was his tennis court. And he was at the center of that world, marked by white lines, a green net, an opponent, and this line judge. And his philosophy was he could lose only one of two ways. Either he would make unforced errors and beat himself, or the line judge would make mistakes and throw the match to his less deserving, less talented opponent. Uh, Maybe an Ohio State fan might say the same thing today. Uh, And he would scream at this judge, you cannot be serious, you've got to be kidding me. Because he rarely believed he beat himself, and therefore the line judge's mistakes weren't just bad calls, they weren't just mistakes, and justice was being done in his world. Believe it or not, Christians can have a tendency to be a lot like John McEnroe. Now, if you don't identify with the verbal nature of his outburst, you might not recognize it immediately. You might not slam your laptop down when someone misses a deadline. Or you might have never thrown a chair up against a wall in a staff meeting when someone disagrees with you. But like him, nonetheless, we are, because when we perceive injustice being done to us, when someone sins against us, we have a tendency to immediately condemn that person and ask God why it's happening at all. Now, the perceived injustices may vary, but eventually there will be mornings and late nights where you will feel empty in your Christian faith. You will wonder why you feel so deprived of joy. You also may be at your job and someone gets promoted over you who you work harder than because they get along better with your boss. Or uh, you may have peers that basically thumb their nose at God that you don't think have the burden of Christianity and they don't have a care in the world and they have all of life's successes. Or we might see someone we went to school with who we believe were smarter than but covet their outrageous success that's beyond anything we could imagine. And when we find ourselves in these situations, we want to find a line judge. A line judge. We want to scream, you cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. In Psalm 4, David is on the verge of slamming his racket. He's about to scream at the line judge. Look at verse 2 with me when he says, How long will honor be turned to shame? David sees a perversion of his reputation. He has spent his entire life building himself up as a warrior. And then God has made him king. He has to be proud of the fact that he's called a man after God's own heart. And yet no one else seems to care. Like David, we too can build ourselves up. There's nothing wrong with caring about your reputation. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be perceived as a decent or a good person. But David's character is being impugned. His honor is being destroyed. He continues in verse 2, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The people around David are not just believing, but loving the vain words and seeking the lies about him. Because he's God's king, it's clear they don't want to know the true God. They don't want to know the truth about David. And he's identifying them as haters. And he says they're ruining his life. 
In verse 6, David says, who will show us some good? He's speaking for those who are uncertain if any good can come the rest of their life. And the desperation in parts of this psalm is troubling. It's a tangible desperation. David is asking God, why are people trampling over me? Or why would you let people trample over you? Why would you give someone success who's opposed to everything in your word? Because he is the lowly shepherd who God chose as king over his people, but now his honor is being turned to shame. And he's asking the question many of us will ask, which is where is God when we face shame? When we witness injustice to us in our lives, we're tempted to shoulder the problem and fix it on our own terms. And our responses can consist of rage, revenge, argument, subversion, or gossip, or maybe a blend of those. And so considering this, Psalm 4 is there to teach God's people how to deal with someone who's ruining our reputation, how to deal with the emotions that stem from anger and rage and disappointment, and how to deal with disappointing circumstances in general. So I identified four, I mean, three things Psalm 4 specifically lays out. So the first thing is we reflect on our own shortcomings. The second is we pick up our cross daily. And the final one is we realize true joy and peace find us, not the other way around. So we're going to first talk about how we reflect on our own shortcomings based off David's song here. When your character is on the line, you might be someone who gets aggressive. You might be someone who likes a good scrap or goes on offense. But I promise you, no matter how tough you are, you're not as tough as David. We know David was an incredibly powerful warrior. And because of his warrior abilities, David was very capable of enacting justice through real violence that was largely condoned in his society. But notice in this psalm, he does not say that he is going to go out, put on his armor, and slay everyone who's poking him in the eye. He says it's okay to be angry, but to be angry and do not sin. Ponder on your own hearts. I mean, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent in verse 4. David does not place his life on autopilot, letting his anger take over. Instead, he encourages personal reflection. That's what it means to ponder in your own hearts. And this reflection is necessary because God did not put us on earth to enact revenge or punishment for other people's sins, especially those outside the body of Christ. Of course, we are angry and will feel strong emotions and injustice should make us angry, but only God is just. When we feel like God is letting people off the hook, we are actually acting as our own God. And we are coveting his power, sometimes his wrath, without his perfect mercy and without his perfect grace, without his perfect love. And because we are not perfect, we are very capable of actually committing the injustices that offend us. So whenever we want to enact justice on our own terms or solve the world's problems on our terms... We must understand that if not by God's grace, we would actually be committing the injustice rather than being offended by it. I'm going to take a time out here because I want you to please listen to what I'm saying. I think that this psalm is about responding to maybe a peer who is out to ruin your reputation. And so I completely acknowledge that God calls 
all Christians at different times in their life to enact justice. I'm not disagreeing with that. Christians are called by God to carry out justice. Parenting, the military, government, law enforcement are all quick examples of places where Christians are called to do justice and it's actually absolutely necessary for the bettering of this world. But what I'm also saying is that even in these official roles God has called us to, to do justice, it must be done from a pondering heart after a long night of sitting silently on our beds. I think that's a model David is giving us. Imagine a mirror and a window sitting next to each other. Whether we look through the mirror or the window, we are going to be looking for sin. David is encouraging us to look at the mirror first using personal reflection. Uh, That's what it means to sit silently on our beds. It puts us in a reflective mood. David is urging us to look in the mirror before the window because he, of all people, would know the traps of the window. The window causes us to see the specks in other people's eyes. It causes us to see other people's flaws. And it inflates our egos. We start to covet. We start to worry about our own reputations and needs before other people. And it leads us eventually to uh, commit our own hypocritical injustice. When we look in the mirror first, we start to realize that without God's grace, we'd be nothing, that we would be unjust. The mirror tells us the truth about ourselves that before we met Christ, before we were regenerated by the Spirit, we would do anything or say anything to enhance our own reputation and lives as long as we could get away with it. And you see this play out You actually see kind of a live-action Psalm 4 when Jesus comes with the Pharisees, lawyers, and religious leaders who surrounded Jesus. Uh, They were only focused on the outside. The Pharisees conducted almost zero personal reflection. They weren't worshiping God. They worshiped their own piety and then used that to increase their power and then ended up worshiping money. And they wielded their power as a sword. And because they genuinely thought they were living to the letter of the law, they were very eager to judge people around them who were just blatantly breaking God's law. And Jesus saw the irony in this thinking. It's a lot like a cultural narrative in our time happening right now. If we love ourselves too much, and if we don't understand our own capacity for sin, we will start to judge the successes and lives of others, especially the sins of other people against us, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we've determined that their lives are less worthy than our own. A personal reflection reminds us of who is worthy in our life. That's a, uh, injustice or hypocrisy um, or thinking other people are disloyal, uh, misbehaving uh, subjects while we inflate ourselves as God is a consequence of disregarding personal reflection. But because God's perfect justice and perfect love have come into the world through Jesus Christ, injustice does not triumph in our hearts, and more importantly, it's not going to triumph in this world. There's a counter-narrative, the gospel in our culture, that describes Jesus, a man who is God on earth, who lived not for himself, but to save sinners from death and destruction. And that story takes us to a cross. There, Jesus, the only truly good person to ever live, 
uh, to ever walk on this earth stood in our place receiving the punishment for our injustice and our sin and giving us his righteousness. And we see David allude to this in verse 1. He says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. It is God, I'm sorry, God is the one here who is acting. David understands that he is defined by the righteousness God has given to him. David is not defined by the justice he does, the works he does, but by God's righteousness. He knows that he is justified by his belief. And so as we talk about God's righteousness, it leads us into our second point, which is to pick up our cross daily. David tells us in verse 5 to offer the right sacrifices. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Well, we can look for clues about what David thinks it means from other psalms. And he says this exact phrase in Psalm 51, his famous confession to God for his affair with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. And in that psalm, David's right sacrifice consisted first of a broken spirit and contrite heart. We heard this in the Declaration of Absolution. Only after the broken spirit and heart did he move on to sacrificing burnt offerings to God. David understands that his life and his sin is not worthy before God standing alone. A sacrifice was necessary. His sins could not be unchecked. And Jesus comes along and he himself, that ultimate sacrifice to us, sheds further light on what the word sacrifice means for Christians. Two different times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6.6, and he explains to the Pharisees that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is similar to what David is saying. God's mercy is not based on any merit or justice we can do, but on God's steadfast love for us. And this steadfast love will ultimately be shown in him going to the cross for us, standing in our place and establishing God's kingdom. Now, Jesus lays out the kingdom of God, largely also in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And the kingdom of God, as described in that passage, is something that gets right to the heart of Psalm 4. It gets right to what David is alluding to. The reason we can sit silently on our beds and ponder in our hearts is because God's wisdom is going to be seen in this world as foolishness. Success in this world is not success at all because we live in God's kingdom where the older will serve the younger, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. In that passage, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I preached this same sermon uh, at Brian Loney's church, and Brian wanted me to say something about 2020 and the new year upcoming. Uh, this new year, I would encourage you to just foolishly pick up your cross daily. Godly foolishness is placing your hopes on God's steadfast love, not in the perceived qualities or luxuries that we are often told are supposed to make this life bearable. So what is our response to David's command to offer right sacrifices. Well, I think we should turn to Paul's command in Romans 12, 1 through 2, where he addresses Christians who are, and he calls them sacrifices. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus similarly tells us to pick up our cross daily. We do what he did. Uh, we, uh, we tell others what he's done for us. Now, picking up your cross in response to your reputation being dragged through the mud, in response to the injustice David is witnessing, is going to feel like the most foolish and unnatural reaction to honor being turned to shame. It's not going to feel like a fix. Think about the tension that ward inside of David, the warrior king who sat silently on his bed. It's a complete contradiction. We will feel like those committing injustices against us are getting off the hook. We're going to want to scream at that line, judge. You cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. I remember uh, as I was maturing a little bit, as a uh, Christian, and I, I went to my pastor. I lived in El Paso, Texas. My pastor's name was Chuck Isaac, and I went to him, and I'm like, what do I do with all these emotions that I have? And he sat me down a hundred times and explained that the Christian life would consist of repentance and faith and obedience to God. And he would kindly, gently explain to me that none of those three things are based on emotions. We follow a man, after all, who wasn't controlled by his emotions. It's important to note that Jesus himself followed Psalm 4 perfectly. Jesus didn't smite us because of the nasty, horrible things we have done to him. He actually loved us incredibly, despite our sin. And he calls us to love others in the same way, even those poking us in the eye or poking God in the eye. And oftentimes that's despite our feelings. We're called to go back to the hill Calvary every day and pick up our cross. Because Jesus tells us that the people David is upset with in Psalm 4, they're living their lives to one day realize that they've lost them. And Jesus is offering us to live in this subversive, new, beautiful kingdom in which at the end of the day we realize we've been given God's ultimate gift, which is Christ's righteousness. In our sacrifice, in our foolish lives that give up on our desires of success and for money and for beauty and for fame, all of those things which are going to make us think that injustice is being done to us constantly, we get surprised because we realize that true joy and peace find us, not the other way around. This is my last point. I'm almost done. Look at verse 6 with me. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Christ's ultimate sacrifice brings us the answer to David's difficult questions. Despite deep frustrations in this world, we can absolutely expect God's true peace and joy. Despite the hard questions David has asked, we see his faith in God bracketing this very psalm. Listen to the second part of verse 1, where he says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
And again in verse 8 when he says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have peace. Theologian William Vine, I think he defined every word in the Bible. Uh, He called peace a harmonious relationship with God. And because God became man, because of Jesus, we have a potential for a wholeness, a peacefulness in our lives. In a life full of trouble, which Jesus promised we would have, we are sustained and loved by a God who has promised us that our life will not always be full of trouble. God's kingdom is being established before our very eyes. It's right here in Newton. And though it's difficult, we are graciously given a part to play in it by being part of this church. A quick word on God's peace. I remember so many nights of just staring at the ceiling, basically having insomnia, being exhausted, not being able to fall asleep, overwhelmed by all the stuff I didn't get done that day, more overwhelmed by all the stuff on my to-do list the next day, and motivated by a complete fear of failure. And I said, I'm a Christian. Where is God's peace? What is God's peace? And I asked that question as if God could give me an infusion of his peace, like in an injection, or in some meditative state, I could attain it from the airwaves. But that's not what God's peace is. Again, I was having problems with my feelings. Uh, It's an assurance that's based on faith, not a feeling. Like David, we can get so wrapped up in our battles for honor and our avoidance of shame that we'll go back to verse 2. We'll always ask, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? God's peace is an assurance that my life is founded on Jesus Christ, his work, his life, his resurrection. My peace is, has nothing to do with all the stuff I didn't get done today. It has nothing to do with all the stuff that I'm going to have to do tomorrow. It has nothing to do with a fear of failure. Hebrews 12.2 mentions Jesus and shame. It assures us that Jesus despised the shame of the cross and pressed onward for the joy set before him. Those who place their faith in Jesus can rest in his joy, in his peace, in his life, death, and resurrection. That is God's peace. It's not an emotion telling us that life would be easy. Instead, God has shown us through Christ that he is in control of the world now. He upholds this world with his hands, and there is a new world to come. Thank God that Jesus didn't spend time on earth worrying about all the injustices done to him, because even just materially, he could look in this room and feel reasons to be slighted and that injustice has done to him. He had no home, sometimes just the clothes on his back. Sometimes he was one meal away from being hungry. Yet all the things that make us sensitive, all the things that drive us nuts, our searches for power and beauty and wealth meant nothing to him because he truly came as a servant. Yes, David is despondent in Psalm 4, and we will be too. We're going to want to scream, you cannot be serious. You've got to be kidding me. But even in our despondence, we, like David, know the answer. David ends the psalm with a peaceful night's sleep. He confirms to God that he has more joy than his opponents have grain and wine. Now, why does he say this? 
Does God immediately solve all of David's problems from the time it takes him to write verse 1 to verse 8? No, but David remembers in the midst of this psalm what peace and joy are. Our longings are fulfilled in the Lord and nothing else. We are not going to feel that way on a minute-to-minute basis. Loved all the time, wealthy all the time, happy all the time. But if those feelings were always with us, they wouldn't be real, and they wouldn't tell us who we really are, and they wouldn't necessarily make our life better. Jesus' brother, James, in chapter 1 of his letter, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A good reputation and a life where no one does injustice against us is not going to save us. Uh, It is not going to satisfy us. And it's not going to give us mercy. It may make life easier, but it's not even guaranteed that it will make life better And we desire ultimate things. So unless we receive an ultimate reputation, unless we receive ultimate justice in our world, we're always going to be disappointed by the sub-ultimate. We're not truly searching for wealth or for friends or things that really cause us to care about our reputations. We are searching for God. He is the ultimate thing we are searching for. And the beauty of the gospel is that God finds us first. A few years ago, around the time I first read Psalm 4, I was driving home from work in the car listening to the radio. And there was an author on there, and she was being interviewed by the host, and you could tell they knew each other pretty well. And so at the end of the interview, the interview got kind of personal, and the host asked her and said, I know uh, that you and your husband are both struggling with illness, and I just wanted to check up and see how you were doing. And the woman said, yes, uh, uh, I was diagnosed with beginning stage breast cancer, uh, but my doctor thinks that I will make a complete recovery if I stay on my current treatment program. But within days of finding out I had breast cancer, my husband was diagnosed with ALS, and he is holding on for dear life. And I would just like all the listeners out there to please cross their fingers for him. And when when she said that, I lost it. I just, I I started crying like a little baby on the way home from work. And uh, I wanted, you know, you want to like wrap Psalm 4 around that woman. And uh, because she understood that uh, success in this world is, is as good as a life, um, a lifetime in this world. And, and her husband was about to lose that. But her remedy uh, was maybe by chance uh, he would be miraculously cured of his ALS. Uh, it, it's very heartbreaking. And Christians, we are so blessed to know that this life is not the sum of everything. Even the reputation, the good reputations we have or the, the bad reputations we have, the mistakes we've made in this world are not the sum of everything. We have real hope 
even when our lives are torn apart by ALS. Um, our ultimate lives are not in cross fingers, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. His work there lasts forever. Jesus came on this earth to heal our broken hearts and reverse the tumultuous conditions we set for ourselves. He died for our injustices and every sinful desire we've ever had to make ourselves successful. And he rose from the grave to be sovereign and merciful, and he is king, and he graciously begs us to enter into his kingdom. So let's pray about that, because that's, that's great news.